unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my This evening, uh, I want to say to those that are here, thank you so much for being here. For those that are joining us online, uh, whether you're on quarantine, you're sick, or you have made a health decision to stay at home, uh, thank you for joining. I always say that takes, to me, significantly more discipline, paying attention than when you're here. I get so distracted when I watch online. That's not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that's a problem for me. Uh, but I get distracted easily anyways. Uh, but with all that being said, we're glad you're here. Uh, we have uh, had a good study so far, and we're going to do a transition tonight. So last several weeks, uh, we started with what the image of God means, and then we talked about how Christ had to come and fix the ability for us to image, and how we should try to be the exact imprint or the exact image of God, and how we are looking at Jesus's actions on earth and we started with the cross and then we moved on from the cross uh, to a few other events in his life and You know, you've heard the phrase, you know, you gotta walk the walk and talk the talk Well walking the walk is the hardest part. It's easy to talk which words are cheap, right? Uh, so that's why we started with Jesus's actions. What did he do in specific situations and we started with the cross and I mentioned how with the cross that there were so many opportunities just to say, you know what, that's it, I'm checking out, I'm done. And I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Y'all know I mentioned right at the start of class last week that I had gotten a migraine and I could not see very well, so I had, I had a, kind of a tough time figuring out where I was at at points. I also did not do as good of a job, in my opinion, as what I wish I had done, so my apologies for that. Uh, where I'm going somewhere with this, I had an MRI the next morning uh, because I was looking at doing a new treatment for those migraines because they are causing me some problems. Anyways, where I'm going with this is I had to get rolled up in that camera for 18 minutes. I do imaging for a living, right? So I know what I'm, I know what I'm getting myself into. How many of you, let's do a show of hands, how many of you have had to be put inside, into, around, et cetera, into a camera, not an x-ray machine. I'm talking MRI, CT, ultrasound, nuclear medicine, whatever. How many of you, show of hands, have ever had to do that? Wow. All right, now, I want you to take yourself back to that moment. Say if you had a heart study, like, I, like what Brent and I take care of at, at our jobs, your arms up over your head, both of them, right? 
They wheel you up in that camera, and that camera rotates around you. Do your arms get tired? Yeah. We actually literally have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars developing pillows, just the pillow, to try to make that easier for your arms. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. So he tells me to be still when I'm fixing to have my MRI. And I, no worries. I'm in imaging. I know I'm supposed to be still. He goes, well, I'm going to put some wedges around your head. I said, it's fine. It's no big deal. I understand what you're doing. I will be still. Have y'all ever seen me try to be still up here? Being still is just not something I do. But he asked me right before he pushes the button to roll me up in the camera. He says, are you comfortable? I give him two thumbs up. Good to go. Let's get this thing on. Wills me up in the camera. And I knew within 30 seconds of saying I was good that I was not good. For some reason, I don't know why if I was talking or what, I had somehow accordioned my neck into that device that was holding my head. So I was like this, right? And when you're on a table this wide and you're like this, and all of your weight of your shoulders, and mine aren't small, but they're not huge, are laying on your head, it hurts your neck. So I'm sitting there for 17 minutes, meditating, deep breathing, Praying, I can make it for 17 minutes. Christ hung on a cross for nine hours. So when I say he had lots of opportunities to disobey, he had lots of opportunities. Because my neck being uncomfortable because it was a little too crammed up wasn't any big deal. Your arms on top of that machine when you're holding it for your heart scan doesn't quite compare to doing this, right? So when we say he walked the walk, we quite literally mean he walked the walk. So we're transitioning from those examples where he gave us in his life to where he started talking the talk, his teachings. So this week's lesson is going to be a little bit of both because we transition to that. Next week, Brother Billy Martin will be teaching the class, and, his, and that one is called Meals with the Master, where he had various actual sit-down meals with his, with his disciples. So we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, that is next week. And so for the next several weeks, you're going to have Brother Billy and Brother Guy fill in in various roles. Now, I'll be in class for most of those, uh, but they already did these lessons once, and so they'll be doing them again. Uh, but we're getting to the teaching side of things. Now, here's the deal. If watching the actions is difficult, listening to the teachings are too. Okay, they're both difficult because the standard we're supposed to live up to uh, is a pretty high one. And pretty high is way underselling it, right? It's way underselling it. So I realized last week, because I tell y'all, I go back and I listen to myself to make sure that I do the job that I want to do. And I realized last week that I misspoke. I did not realize I had misspoken last week until I was actually studying for this week's lesson. Uh, I'll clarify that error uh, when I get to that part of the text. But we're going to start back at the tomb of Lazarus. And as you recall, at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And we talked about a variety of reasons why he was in the tomb for four days. And I ran out of time in that class. And I didn't get as far into that as I wanted to get to. So to set this study up tonight, which is a little shorter, I'm going to have to go back and review some of those, those things for you. 
So he's in their tomb for four days. Jesus calls him out. He is bound. We talk about how the dead, the decaying, the stench, etc., is what God sees us if we're not washed in the blood of Christ. And we talked about how that is a representation of us. Dead Lazarus is a representation of the dead us. Then we talked about how Lazarus came out and he was bound because he could not move. Right? He could not move. You are bound in your sins. You are a slave to sin without Christ. But what did Jesus do to Lazarus? He took the bindings off. And Lazarus was a new creation, a new man, a man that was alive. And in that, I mentioned that in about a week, that Lazarus would, that Jesus would be dying. And we talked about how he had that weird emotion of anger, sadness. It was a very strong emotion. But I want to make sure we talk about the end of that, because that's where I misspoke. I think it was a little longer than a week. So in the interest of making sure I don't misteach or teach y'all something inaccurately, I think it was closer to 10 to 14 days. Okay? So my apologies uh, for doing that. Because I think it was a little longer. As I studied deeper into this lesson, I was like, I think I missed that. I think I, I, I know why I said what I said, but I, I missed it. And so I want to make sure we get that. But I also want to bring this out because John has, as I roll through it here, yeah, 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 21 chapters. Lazarus dies in John 11. So you don't really instantly think Lazarus died 10 to 14 days before Jesus did. Your brain doesn't do a good job of computing all that text as a very short period of time. Now, how do we know it was a short period of time? That's what I'm going to bring out for you today, okay, in today's lesson. So we're going to start at the very end of the tombs. So that's John 11, verse 54. John 11, verse 54. So what has happened so far is Lazarus has been raised from the dead and there is a plot to kill Jesus. Now there was a desire to kill Jesus many times over the, over the preceding few weeks and years to that point. But this is where it changed. This is where it changed. This is where it went from, it's a good idea to, it's a good idea to kill Jesus, Maybe we should kill Jesus to they actually had a meeting and they decided they're going to kill Jesus. And someone spoke up in that meeting and went, you know, if this is from God, it's it's not we can't get rid of it. Remember that that group of scriptures? They said, but but if it's not from God, it'll go away on its own. Did that deter them? No. They wanted to kill Jesus. So let's look at verse 54. Now remember, this is happening right after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now, what is the problem? Jesus has just done something so convincing that he is the son of God, they cannot stand it. And the Bible tells us in John 11 that the, the rulers, that group of rulers, that Judaism rulers, they were worried that people were going to leave them. In other words, they were going to lose their power. So we get to verse 54, it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So immediately after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he goes to the wilderness. We do not know how long he was in the wilderness. What I can tell you is he made about a 30-mile circle. 
Now, how do I know he made a 30-mile circle? Because the Bible tells us that. He was in Bethany. He went north to Ephraim. Okay? That's the wilderness area. There's a lesson there. There's a lesson there. Sometimes, whenever things are bad, it's a good idea to get out and get into God's creation. Get away from what is bothering you. Now, in this case, Jesus was quite literally running for his life. The lesson that I want you to have, this is not the main lesson, this is a short lesson of this. They wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted Jesus dead right then. But was that God's plan for Jesus to die right then? Yes or no? No. Why couldn't Jesus die right then? Wasn't his time. I think I heard someone say in the middle over here, there was a prophecy about when he would die. He had to die on Passover. He had to. There were prophecies about that. There were also prophecies. There's also tons of symbolism between the Passover, the lamb's blood being put over the doorpost, and those Jews being saved, and Christ's death. Also, all those, all those correlations about the lamb of God at Passover, they're killing the lambs nonstop. And one side of town, on the other side of town, they're killing the Lamb of God. So he had to die on that Friday. The sub-lesson here is, God's plan wins. Did Jesus Christ have an army? Did he have a police force? Did he have a security detail? No. Why was it so hard for them to kill him? Because it didn't align with God's plan. I think sometimes that takes our peace. And if you remember that lesson, we talked about that unsurpassing, that peace that surpasses everything. We get so worried about our plans and where we want things to fit, we forget God's plan wins. They could not kill him right now. So he just left and went to the wilderness. You ever had a surgery or something coming up and you just wanted to get it over with because you didn't want to think about it anymore? Ever had a bad day you knew was coming and you just wanted to get it over with? Sure. You don't think Jesus Christ felt that about the crucifixion? He has some extra energy, right? He's stressed, has some anxiety. He goes on a 30-mile walk. He goes up to Ephraim. He's there for a while. Why is he there? According to verse 54... He is there because they don't, he does, he cannot die because the Jews openly are trying to kill him. Where does he go next? Well, if you keep reading John, you miss part of the story. So we're actually going to flip over to Luke 19. And I'm going to prove to you these two things are completely tied together. So he goes up to Ephraim, he's in the wilderness, he's hiding from the Jews. This is not a very long period of time, by the way. This is very short. Because as soon as he leaves Ephraim, he then goes to Jericho. That is south and to the east of Ephraim. It's this way. So he went up and he went this way. What's he doing in Jericho? Well, let's see. Luke 19 verse 1 says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Did the Jews like tax collectors? No. Did the Jews like people that were rich? 
They like to be rich themselves, right? Sure. Do we love the IRS? No. We love Jeremy, but he's not the IRS, right? He's an accountant. He tells us how much we have to pay, but he's not an actual tax collector. We in America have a unique relationship with the rich. We are somewhat amused or enthralled by them. We like to see what they have. And we're like, man, how'd they get all that? And there's also a little bit of a resentment we have towards them, too, if we're just being real honest with ourselves. I mean, we had a congresswoman from New York wear a dress that said tax the rich at an event where it was had nothing but billionaires there. I'm like, boy, you missed the party, honey. You missed the whole point. So we have those feelings about the rich. Poor Zacchaeus is both. He's both. He's a, he's a chief tax collector and he's rich, verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. And he was short. We little man was he. We sing the song. He's up to our kids. Normally when we teach about Zacchaeus, we teach about Zacchaeus and what he did. But that's not what this class is about. This class is about what Jesus did. It flips the script on this story. This is about, would you do the same thing Jesus did? Because I want you to make sure you catch the fact that that crowd was in Zacchaeus' way. There were a lot of people there. So what happened? Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I've told y'all some throughout this class that if we're to be like Jesus, we should do what he does, when he does it, for the motivation that he did it for. What would he do? Why would he do it? And do it when he would do it? All three of those are tough to line up sometimes. There is a crowd of people around. They're all Jews, by the way. They do not like tax collectors, let alone chief tax collectors. And there's a crowd of them around Jesus. And they, Jesus knows there is an order out for his death. That's why he went to Ephraim and then around to Jericho. He knows that. He is not in a crowd of people that necessarily all love him. And he stops and he sees the single most unpopular person on the planet to these people. And what did he do? He went to his house, but I want to say before that. What did he do before that? He told him to come down from there. What did he do before that? I think I heard something back there. Louder. He saw him. You ever had a conversation with somebody and they're listening? Well, let me rephrase to you. They're nodding at you, but they ain't hearing a word you're saying. They don't see you. I think sometimes when guests come into our congregations, new people we don't recognize, we go through the motions. Good to have you this morning. Did we see that person? Did we talk with that individual? 
Or do we make ourselves feel better by making sure we talk to the person that walked in our doors? By the way, I'm just as guilty as anybody. Did this literally last week. Sunday morning, there was a lady sitting in front of me. I had never seen her before. She got up, she turned around, she gave me a compliment about my singing. Clearly, she couldn't hear. Then, y'all didn't have to laugh at the same time. Then she turns around after she does this, and I, I do what I'm supposed to do, right? Good to have you this morning. I did not say another word after that. And we had this awkward walk out the back of the building together. I was clammed up. I couldn't say a word. I have no idea why. She may be in the, she may be in the audience right now. If you were here, I am sorry. I failed. My eyes saw her, but I didn't see her. I think I was so fiberglassed by the fact that she complimented my singing, I was speechless. That's what I want to say to myself. But where I'm getting at is, I don't know her name. I don't know where she's from. I don't know why she was here. Jesus stopped. And a crowd of people that did not like this individual, regardless of what he looked like, regardless of who he was in the community, regardless of the fact that he was rich, he stopped, he saw him, he talked to him, he said, I'm going to eat at your house. As a general rule, if you go out to lunch with somebody, is there a conversation that happens? Sure. You get to know someone if you go out to eat with them a little bit better. They actually recommend doing this with new job applicants for high-level jobs. Don't just interview them. Go out to eat with them. Get to know the person. Jesus says, I'm going to your house. What was the result? Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Did Zacchaeus hear that? Let me tell you something. When someone knows they don't fit, they are very aware when you laugh and, smock, when you laugh and mock at them. They are very aware that they don't fit. It's amazing how good we are at that. I actually think that goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. I was at an event a few weeks ago that I did not fit at and was extraordinarily uncomfortable at. And the moment I could make an exit, I did. You want to hear that story, I'll tell you that story later, but it's not going to happen from up here. I, you know when you don't fit. And the crowd grumbled. And what was Zacchaeus' response? Was the crowd right about Zacchaeus? Was he a person that just betrayed his people and ripped off all the Jews and did all those things? I don't know. Let's see. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, I don't know that this happened, but I can't figure out an alternative reason for why the word stood would be put in there unless Zacchaeus came down from the tree and did something besides stand. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus said, calm down. He comes down and then it tells us that he stood. What's the opposite of standing? Or kneeling or bowing? Did Zacchaeus recognize that Jesus was God? Yeah, 
He got it. Called him Lord. Yeah, but it would indicate he heard those comments. Yes, I love that. And I love when we sell that, share that, and and that's why I never get stuck on just a single translation. I read, I try to read when I study multiple translations because you can get very inflections of words from that. But meaning he heard. The stood to me is mind-boggling because I had never thought about. And I had, by the way, this is my go-to sermon. Zacchaeus is my go-to sermon when I go to a new place. My go-to sermon. I've never noticed that word until I started studying for this text. It says, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. I'm going to cut it in half, and I'm giving that to the poor. Don't forget that statement. Giving half of everything I have to the poor. He just lost 50% of his net, of his net worth with that statement. And I have defrauded, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In other words, if I took more than I should have as, my, as a tax collector, I'm going to give four times back as much. Was Zacchaeus a tax collector that was ripping off the Jews? Clearly not. Because he could have never said that statement if he had ripped off the Jewish people. Have you ever thought about that? How can you repay someone four times if you did it all the time? And you cut off your net worth by 50%. What did they hate him for? Because he was a tax collector and he just fit in that group. See, that's what we would call a prejudice, right? He is that. Is it entirely possible that Zacchaeus hated tax collectors as much as everyone else? He didn't like the fact that the Jewish people were being ripped off and he said... I'm going to do it right. I'm going to collect the tax, but I'm not going to rip people off. I'm going to protect my people. We've never thought about it from that perspective. He couldn't have paid it back fourfold if he'd been ripping people off. And by the way, could he have made it to chief tax collector because he worked so hard to get there? He collected so much tax that the Roman government was like, this guy's good. Can make him chief which gave him the ability to take care of the Jewish people even further. I don't know if that's what happened or not. All I do know, though, is Zacchaeus would have been a liar. And Jesus would have called him on the lie because he knows the truth. What was Jesus' response when Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give half of it to the poor. Don't forget that sentence. Then he said, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. Salvation has come to this house. It's interesting how this goes. It says, verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was not a perfect man. There's no doubt from that statement he was not a perfect man. But he also wasn't the person everyone thought he was either. The lesson for all of us, the short lesson for all of us is, before we go much further down the road on this one, is there are going to be people that do not fit the mold that we are accustomed to. They may not look like us. They may not talk like us. They may not think like us. Does that disqualify them from being welcomed into this building? 
No. But are we really ready for that? Why didn't I talk to that woman? I have no idea. I have no idea, and it bothers me. Why I didn't go further down that road? That may have been my only opportunity, and I squandered it. See, she was older than me. She was the same race as me. But I couldn't even get past that. And I'm supposed to become all things to all men, like Paul said. Wait a minute, to the Romans he became a Roman, to the Jew he became as a Jew. And I couldn't even get past someone that was literally looked and talked from, like, by the way, she was from Mississippi. Her accent totally betrayed her. And I'm failed. I missed it. So maybe I'm not ready for that. But see, that's what Jesus actually did. But now, before we go to the next thing, I want you just real quick, take your eyes and glance down to verse 28 of Luke 19. Up above that, there's probably a subheading that says the triumphal entry. Anybody see that in their Bible? Yep. When did that happen? Right before he went into Jerusalem to be what? That's how we know Lazarus, because remember Jesus went straight from raising Lazarus to Ephraim for a short time in the wilderness, then went to Jericho because Luke 19, excuse me, yeah, Luke 19 tells us that. We can just scroll right down and we can see the triumphal entry. This happens right before he dies. Right before he dies. So now... What happens next? Well, let's flip, up, flip over to John 11, verse 55. I know we're moving around a lot tonight, but I think sometimes we don't do a great job of putting all this together in context. This is all happening right before the cross. John 11, verse 55. That's where we start out where it said that therefore he no longer walked openly. We know that because of the Jews now dropped down. That was verse 54. Verse 55 says... Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Why did that matter? Because God's plan is about to win. What was on Jesus' mind right before he died? Well, let's review. He raised a dead man that he was friends with to glorify God. He let him lay there and stink for four days before he raised him. He untied him. Then he fled because they wanted to kill him. But now he's got to come back home because he's got to get on that cross. He goes through Jericho. He sees someone that he tells the Jews, this guy has salvation. The implication is also, y'all don't. After he leaves Jericho, what does he do? Verse 55 is where that picks back up. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, don't miss this verse. What do you think? That, that he will not come to the festival at all? 
There was a group of people sitting around wondering if Jesus would show up to Passover. This was the Jew of Jews. And they were wondering if he would obey the law and show up for Passover. Why would they be wondering that? Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. If any one of them knew where he was, he should not let them know so that they might arrest him. The government is now using its power to intimidate people to their will. They're saying, if you see him, you tell us where he's at. And we're going to arrest him. What's the implication? Don't mind us and we're going to arrest you. See how that works? Would you get the message if the government told you that statement today? Sure you would. You better tell us. If you're hiding him, you better tell us. It was so convincing, this group of disciples is wondering, is he even going to show up? Well, did he? Yeah, he did. He really showed up. No, he wasn't trying to hide. All he did was leave the city, walk a circle, and come right back. That's all he did. He just had to get there when he was supposed to get there. We get to chapter 12. Six days. That's where I got the week from, class. That's where I messed up and told y'all it was a week. Because I was running through this, and I was trying to get it all together, and I was putting all these two lessons together, and I'm, this is where I'm a human messed up. Like I said, I think this is probably closer to 10 to 14 days for him to make that circle. We know regardless, it all's happening right at the very end of his life. Because it's six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now remember, that's where he started. He was at Bethany. Lazarus was raised. He fled to Ephraim. Where'd he go next? Jericho. How do we know that? Because that's where Zacchaeus was. If you keep reading Zacchaeus' story, it went straight to the triumphal entry, which is back at Bethany. That's the circle he just made. Something unique happens here. Because it says where Jesus, or excuse me, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. I say you're Lazarus. You've been dead four days. Jesus raises you, then takes off, and then shows back up at your shows back up at your house, and you sit down with him. What would you ask him? What would you tell him? <laughs> what a conversation I would love to hear. I have told y'all before as I've taught the class of Genesis that in my room in house at God's house, I really hope there's like a massive big screen. It just has on loop certain moments in the Bible of history, kind of like the History Channel, and I can just watch it happen. Because this is one of those moments I just think we just miss. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now if you remember, what we learned about Mary last week was she was the one that had anointed Jesus. Past tense. This is the next chapter. This is the second time this woman has done this to Jesus. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I personally believe that is a direct mockery 
of what Zacchaeus did in Jericho just a few days earlier. And you've probably never put those two stories together. The evil tax collector comes down from the tree. Jesus goes and eats with him. And the man that had his hands in the money pot saw Zacchaeus give all of his money to the poor. And he basically calls Jesus a hypocrite to his face. Why was this not given to the poor? I think those two statements are completely linked, which is why I told you, remember that statement by, by Zacchaeus. Because I think the tree is linked too. I think there's a lot of parallels at the very end of Jesus' life right through here. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is at the very end of his life. So what we're about to get to is those final words, those deathbed words, right? So what we're getting to, the very end of his life, verse 9 says... When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Wait a minute. Lazarus was from Bethany. Jesus left and came back to Bethany. And now they're coming for Jesus and Lazarus. Was Lazarus hiding? Maybe. We don't know. But let's look at this. Whom he had raised from the dead, verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This was all about power to, the, to that group of people. They were leaving them and they were going to Jesus. They wanted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus. They wanted to wipe everything away. Because they thought if they wiped everything away... Their human plan would work. Did it? How pathetic did they fail? We are 2,000 years later and we're still sitting here talking about the man they wanted to eradicate. And we're not even Jews. And we're not even from Jerusalem. I don't know of a better truth that Jesus walked this earth than that one single fact. He had no army. And he changed the world. That ain't never happened before. He preached peace. And he changed the world. That ain't never happened before. And we've never changed the calendar because someone else lived here. That ain't never happened before. I want you to, to look down through here. And if you just turn... Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. Just look at verse 12. There it is. Triumphal entry is about to start again. That's how you know Luke 19 and this story are linked. Why? Because the triumphal entry puts them on the same time scale. It ties it all together. And for me personally, I find this mesmerizing because I had never thought of Zacchaeus and the, the, death, of, the death and resurrection of Lazarus to be in Jesus' final days. And I, I just missed that as a Christian. That, this, was at, this was the end, the bitter end. Skip down to verse 27 for me. And I hope I do a good job of changing your opinion of Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus and what Jesus did there in a way that you've never seen before. 
Because now that we've linked these two stories, now that we've linked them, because they are linked, they're both happening right before the triumphal entry, these words by Jesus Christ take on a completely new meaning. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. Period. That is not a question. He wasn't asking, is my soul troubled? He said, my soul is troubled, is the way we would word that in today's English. Why was his soul troubled? Let's see. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He is vexed. That's what he's saying. That's the human side not lining up with the God side. Because he's wondering, he's like, I want to be saved. I don't want to do it. But it's the only reason I'm here. We know later on, the night before his death, he begs it to be moved from him. We're six days out here. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. In other words, God, you be praised. Because his plan's about to come to fruition. Then listen to this. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What in the world is God talking about? Could it be Jesus' birth on earth was the first glory, and that again is his second birth on earth? When he rises from that tomb? I don't know. Could it be I made them perfect and they messed up and now I'm glorifying it again, going back to the image and creation story? I don't know. What's interesting is the response. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it, heard what? The voice. The voice of God spoke. And people heard it besides Jesus. Said it, it had thundered. It had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. This is what you would call the group that didn't want to see Jesus said it was thunder. The group that wanted to see Jesus knew it was heavenly. What you look for tends to be what you find. Jesus' response, verse 30, says, Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Then he gets real dark. Now will the ruler, referring to Satan, of this world be cast out. In other words, Satan's fixing to lose. Verse 32, And I... Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ in the flesh. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people, all men, all mankind, what translation you said, to myself. What is he talking about if he gets... His resurrection. Surely, surely he's talking about his resurrection. 
Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He is not talking about the resurrection. He says, when I get hung on that cross, there's going to be a change in the world. Because I'm going to draw all men to me when that happens. Why are you here today? Because he was telling the truth. Zacchaeus climbed a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus accepted that person that didn't fit the mold. And he called him down from the tree. But then Jesus climbed on a tree so that everyone would get called to him. So my question for you, that whole what would he do, when would he do it, and what motivation would he do it, Are you calling everybody, all mankind? Or are you just calling the folks you're comfortable with? And that's being created in the image of Christ. If you have any internal prejudices or biases or any of that stuff, they don't fit with what Jesus did in the last days of his life. And you need to get rid of those things. Because that is not being the image of Christ. I hope I never let someone walk out of this building again and say, Hello, glad you were here today, and then quit talking. I'm ashamed of myself. Don't be like me. Don't do that. Right? Thank you so much for being here tonight. We're going to end in a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Lord. We're especially mindful of your Son, Lord, for the latter days of his life. The numerous examples of his obedience, the numerous examples of him teaching us how to live and how we should treat other people, Heavenly Father. We pray that you'll be with everyone in this class, that we will be more like Jesus, that therefore we'll look more like you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your Son and all that he did. Continue to wash us in his blood so that we may be pure and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.